questions you always had. The answers you were never given. The place to seek the truth. Welcome to Veritas. As we commemorate Veterans Day this week, tonight's special guest knows about blood. As an army officer assigned to special forces in clandestine intelligence operations in the Vietnam War, he shed, quote-unquote, soldiers' blood in an enemy mortar attack on his camp in 1967. Blessed with life after surviving the loss of both legs, he returned to life as a veteran who served his country. Subsequent to experiences in a variety of political, public service, and financial endeavors, he began to acquire a keen interest in the real causes of wars and their attendant casualties throughout history in contrast to the histories written by potentially biased sources. Healing from the emotional issues related to his wounds, he grew in spiritual depth and faith. His extensive and concentrated research over many years motivated him to pen Soldiers' Blood and Bloodied Money, a hard-hitting work that pulls no punches and exposes the quote-unquote usual suspects who have profited from wars and derived their bloodied money. His considerable and wide-ranging research has resulted in naming the individuals and institutions throughout history who have fostered and fomented horrendous wars, such as arms merchants, religious leaders, politicians, international bankers, media titans, lawyers, and secret societies. Listen carefully to grasp the political, financial, business, religious, social, and propaganda-based truths leading to wars. You are listening to Veritas. If this is your first time, welcome home. To listen to tonight's full interview and all of our material, join the Veritas family and click on the subscribe button at veritasradio.com. You can make your purchase with a credit card, PayPal, cash, check, money order, and even cryptocurrency. We are now accepting Bitcoin, Litecoin, and Ethereum. Don't forget to visit the Veritas store for focused life force energy, MMS, CBD pure hemp oil, Divinia water, pure organic sulfur, flash drives with all our Sanitas and Veritas seasons, and other great products. And if you want to get in touch with Mel, want to be a guest on this radio program, have a guest suggestion, or have feedback, just click on the contact button of our website at veritasradio.com. And if you're listening on YouTube, like, subscribe, and share it. And click the bell to be notified when new interviews are available. And now, here's your host, Mel Hostelrick. 1963 West Point graduate, Alan B. Clark, served in Vietnam as a military intelligence officer involved in undercover intelligence operations against Cambodia, assigned to the 5th Special Forces Group, the Green Berets. On June 17, 1967, he was severely wounded in a mortar attack at Dak, the Special Forces Camp in the Central Highlands of South Vietnam, and required 15 months of hospitalization for treatment after amputation of both his legs below his knees. He was awarded the Silver Star for gallantry in action, a Purple Heart, Bronze Star, Air Medal and Combat Infantryman's Badge. He is airborne qualified and is a retired Army Captain. He has written many books, including his autobiography, Wounded Soldier, Healing Warrior. The late Ross Perot wrote the foreword. His new book is titled soldiers' blood and bloodied money, wars and their ruling elites. His goal is to bring a spiritual approach for veterans so they can heal from wartime traumas. And we have a more comprehensive bio on our website. 
His lay ministry to veterans suffering from combat operating stress may be found at his website, combatfaith.com, which is also linked at ours. Today, I'm honored to welcome the Honorable Alan B. Clark. Hello, Mr. Clark, and welcome to Veritas. And on behalf of our audience, thank you for your service. Well, thank you, Mel. I'm honored and privileged to be with you today. It is my honor. May I call you Alan? Of course. Thank you. Well, Alan, you come from a lineage of warriors. Your father fought in the Korean War. He went through the Great Depression and World War II. That great generation. The fruit doesn't fall far from the tree. The title of your latest book is Soldiers, Blood and Bloodied Money Wars and the Ruling Elite. You shed your own soldier's blood in Vietnam. Would you please recount for our audience the circumstances of your service in the Vietnam War when you were wounded? Well, um, I was a West, I'm a West Point graduate, and so I guess I got in the family business with my father being an officer also. He was... Um, um, he went in on active duty in World War II immediately after uh, the my birth. Two months later, he was called on active duty in 1942. And uh, he, he did not serve overseas in World War II. My father was always a little bit uh, saddened and I guess a little embarrassed about that. But he said, I volunteered twice, son, but I just never was called. And I said, well, okay, Dad, don't worry about it. You, you, you were there and you were available. You were ready to go. And then uh, he ended up serving in the Army of Occupation in Japan, and um, I met a lot of, saw and met, uh, and had a lot of uh, interaction with young West Point officers in the Army post that we were stationed in Japan in 1949 to 52, and I was always impressed by them, so at age eight, I just started having tunnel vision to go to West Point, become an officer, so I studied very hard. I went to a Catholic Jesuit high school, and I went to a, a prep school in New Hampshire, um, Phillips Exeter Academy, and I had an interesting thing happen, Mel, and that was that um, I received my nomination to West Point from a lame duck congressman out of Arkansas, my father's uh, state of residence. My mother kept it in Texas, so dad was very smarty, and we had six opportunities for nomination. So I got my nomination, and the congressman, uh, I told the congressman, uh, Brooks Hayes, chairman of the House Foreign Relations Committee, I don't want the nomination next year because I'm only an 11th grader. He called me on New Christmas Eve, my 11th grade at Exeter Academy. And I said, I don't want the nomination next year. And he said, Alan, I'm out of office next year. I'm filling up all my slots. And he said, uh, why don't you take my nomination and uh, it'll be a principal nomination. If you pass the exams and everything, you'll, you'll be admitted as appointed to the academy. If you don't, then you, you'll have practiced for a year. I said, Congressman, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, it was Christmas Eve, 1958, my 11th grade. So I got admitted to the academy, entered as the youngest man in my class, about 735 cadets. And obviously when I graduated, 504 cadets, I was still the youngest man in my class. I did well academically because I had studied so hard. I fulfilled my lifelong dream. I was married soon after my graduation in 1963. And um, my first wife was really wedded to... Uh, North Dallas and Dallas, Texas, and a wonderful life that she had endured. And uh, I was a general's aide. I was a, a combat engineer, platoon leader, company executive officer. And she told me after about three years when I'd become a, a general's aide to the 2nd Armored Division Commanding General, two-star, that she wanted me to get out of the military. I just 
I couldn't believe it. I said, I don't want to, that's all I ever wanted to do was go to West Point, become an officer. I says, I would prefer that we become civilians. And so, you know, when you, you, you try to preserve your marriage and, uh, I said, okay, I will resign. Um, you know, very half-heartedly, obviously. My heart was not in it. But I transferred to military intelligence, hoping that I could, um, maybe transfer into the foreign area specialty program, Latin America. My mother's Amalia de la Fuente. She was an Hispanic. Her father was from Asturia, Spain, and he had migrated into Mexico and Texas early 1900s. So I thought that maybe I could transfer to that. Even after I did that, she says, no, I still want you out. So um, uh, the assistant division commander wanted me to become his junior, he wanted to become his his aide-de-camp to go to Korea. And I would have been able to avoid the Vietnam War, which by 60... uh, 566 was on, and I could have uh, come back after my four years was up. We were all extended as regular Army officers and finished my fifth year in the United States, avoided Vietnam. And, you know, Mel, I, I could not do that. I had duty, honor, country in my heart and my soul. And so I volunteered for Vietnam without telling her, and that created a, 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 mag, a ma- massive spiritual problem that did not get solved for 25 years when she finally forgave me. And that's another story answers to prayer. But um, so I went to Vietnam and as a, originally as a prisoner of war interrogator, there are no prisoners to interrogate September, August, September 1966 when I went to Nha Trang, which is a French Riviera of uh, South Vietnam. So I was on a plane one day with a tactical officer, and I recall his name from West Point, told him I was really bored in my job. And so this Lieutenant Colonel, Army Special Forces, Green Beret, uh, commanding officer in Central Highlands of Vietnam, said, you transferred to Special Forces, which was in the same town, the train, uh, and I will give you a job that you will not be bored in. And I said, well, I guess I'll do that. So I, I transferred over. I was airborne qualified, hadn't gone to the Special Forces school. So I transferred over. And then about a week, I was at headquarters after about a week, and the I went into the uh, personnel office, uh, S1, and the sergeant said, um, I said, why am I not at my assignment up country, as we call it in Central Highlands? He said, we've changed your assignment. I said, well, that's really great. I said, why don't you all tell me if you've changed my assignment? What is it? He says, uh, we can't talk about it. It's classified. So eventually I found out it was espionage against Cambodia. So uh, I helped set up this um, new, brand new unit called Attachment B-57, Clandestine Operations Against Cambodia. My first assignment was an incredibly interesting assignment where I debriefed a Cambodian officer who eventually was murdered after I left country. It was on the front page of the New York Times after I'd come back from the war and was in graduate school. I front page New York Times, left-hand column, um, in Chin Hai Lam, the officer from Cambodian Army, a defector, had been murdered. And so um, it was one of those wild and crazy things. But anyway, then I trained for three months for two infiltration missions on the border of Cambodia, letting uh, training three and two uh, young Cambodian anti-communists to infiltrate through the jungle into Cambodia. It was unsuccessful, triple canopy jungle, American troops with machetes can barely make it and with, um, you know, combat engineers blowing stuff up. So uh, we did that. And then I was assigned to a place called Dokto Special Forces Camp in the Central Highlands in the spring of 1967. So I was trying to set up agent networks there. It was unsuccessful because I found out later the most heavily bunkered underground installation areas in the entire country was just west of our camp toward the tri-border point of Laos and Cambodia. And... um 
an enemy battalion of North Vietnamese Army regulars came across the border in um, about the second or third week of June 1967. They had their privileged sanctuaries in Cambodia after they came down the Ho Chi Minh Trail. And supposedly Cambodia was a neutral country, but Prince Sihanouk let them come in. They were based there. This battalion came over. They ambushed two of our patrols, killed maybe six out of seven American Green Berets. And uh, my commanding officer wanted me out of the camp because I was undercover, clandestine activities, false ID. My name was Alan Copley, United States Army. So I had what's called plausible denial <laughs> uh, if I were captured. The Captain Alan Copley, United States Army, does not exist on the roles of the United States Army. I didn't realize that at the time. I, I had to be a little bit older in, in civilian life to understand the, the total, um, what that meant. So uh, I was up there, and he said I was going to pick you up. I'm going to come up from Saigon, 280 miles away, in an airplane, and pick you up on Saturday morning, June 17, 1967, at 9.30, 10 and a half months into a 12-month tour. And so I was prepared to leave. I mean, um, you know, I was my, my operations was shut down. My, my um, Montagnard spies that I had recruited were not going into the jungle anymore. And um, so I was on the last shift between 4 to 6 on the morning of June 17, 1967. And uh, we always have an American uh, Special Forces person on duty during, during a two-hour shift to kind of walk the perimeter and everything, when a mortar attack and rocket attack started from across the river just to the uh, south of our camp. And um, since I was the American awake and alive, uh, most of the people just got into bunkers, you know, and let the barrage uh, go. Uh, I made sure that a radio operator in an underground bunker called up the Air Force to, to come and help us and uh, relieve our camp. And I started grabbing men to put them out on mortar pits um, and yelled out orders, put the flares up on the on the wall, as we called it, toward where the enemy I knew was firing from, and also to put counter-battery fire toward that direction. And all of a sudden, I am on my stomach, uh, around, hits to my left rear, takes my left leg off traumatically, about two inches below my knee. As I turned out later on, my right leg was broken in five places, and they eventually had to have it amputated ten days later. I came very, very close to dying. I don't remember... Um, male hurting. I, I think my good Lord uh, wanted to save me for the rest of my life and uh, knew that I would be suffering, but I didn't. he didn't want me to die. So I always thank my good Lord that I lived. Two combat, um, uh, combat medic Green Berets uh, saved my life by treating me immediately. I got morphine quick. I got plasma really quickly. Uh, we had 25 Americans in the camp, nine wounded, two killed, so we took 44% casualties. I was medevaced out and came back to the United States within seven days, and that started 15 months of rehab. So that's kind of my war story in a nutshell. You know, I'm a combat guy. I'm no, you know, uh, fixed bayonets, charge type of guy, no infantry officer, intelligence officer that just happened to be at the wrong place at the wrong time during an attack and did what I guess we're trained to do in the military is to respond. And so I did that and I was rewarded for my, um, with my silver star, a third highest decoration, obviously, um, got a purple heart. You know, I got two legs off and only one purple heart mail. I questioned that laughingly through the years. You'd got two, maybe only got one. And, um, so 
I'm very proud to have been a soldier. I'm proud to have served my country. And uh, there's a lot of questions about how we fought that war, and we can talk about that a little bit. But uh, I did my duty, and I feel good about that. And uh, one of my lifelong efforts has been to try to work with uh, all veterans from all the wars, even back to World War II and Korea, and especially my war, especially the younger veterans here the last couple of decades, try to help them heal from their combat, combat operating stressors. I believe the number, correct me if I'm wrong, but the total is about 58,220, the actual death count. Hindsight is twenty twenty. You fought the war. You did what you thought was right. But after so many decades and knowing that I know that you knew the great H. Rose Perot. As, as you know, he was a fighter. And he tried to bring back some of our brothers who were left behind in Laos and Cambodia. They had their eviction and invasion coats in rice fields. Satellite imagery was available to our government. And we did not bring him back. And I believe this is one of the reasons why he wanted to become president. In retrospect, what are your thoughts on that war? Well, there are several factors here, Mel, and um, if I do a second book, I'm going to cover the, the wars of the, the 20th and 21st century uh, for a, another follow-up volume to Soldiers' Blood and Bloodied Money. But uh, one of the things, of course, is that um, there was something called the domino theory, and we believe that if we didn't take a stand uh, in South Vietnam against the communists, that, quote, uh, uh, Cambodia would fall, Laos would fall, Thailand would fall, uh, eventually Indonesia would fall, and the Philippines and so forth, because the communists were on the move. They were using their surrogates, you know, what they call wars of national liberation. Now, I will digress a minute to that agent that uh, was eventually murdered, that I debriefed, that young Cambodian officer. Very interesting, he spoke seven languages Okay, now that's a pretty high value guy. He had studied at Patrice Lumumba University in Moscow, which is called the Peace University or something today. But back in the 50s and 60s, and I don't know how long after that, um, Moscow would bring in sharp young people from all over the world, and they would train them to go back and do wars of national liberation, um, which is different from that in the 1980s in Nicaragua and so forth by the Jesuits, which I wrote about in my book. But uh, they would bring them back. And so he was one of those people, and he was obviously probably a double agent, maybe even a triple agent. And there was controversy about that man uh, being murdered by possibly one of our own officers. So the communists were using um, the North Vietnamese to to attack the South and to set up the guerrilla operations. Um, the Russians and the Chinese ended up supplying uh, Vietnam and the communists the Viet Cong in the South, uh, through Haiphong Harbor. An interesting thing I found out from a friend of mine who was a naval officer and flew um, planes in uh, South Vietnam. In 1965, he heard one of our fellow officers, he said, you know, we should have mined Haiphong Harbor, which was just downriver from um uh, Hanoi in 1965. We did not do that until about 1972, maybe not even really mined it then. But seven years later, when we finally shut down the traffic for the Russians and the Chinese, Chinese coming cross country, but the Russians bringing weapons in to the, those bases. So possibly we had a chance to shut that down much earlier and saved 
tens of thousands of our casualties. So that's one of the issues. I have now studied and realized that um, the uh, uh, Golden Triangle were um, a bunch of former national... Thank you for listening. To unlock the full two-hour interview, including video formats, downloads, transcripts, exclusive articles, and more, subscribe to Veritas Plus now. Gain access to our entire archive dating back to 2008. Just click subscribe at veritasradio.com. Because you don't want to believe, you want to know. Subscribe now. To listen to the rest and all of our exclusive material, proceed to the Veritas Plus member section or join the Veritas Plus family by subscribing. Click on the subscribe button at veritasradio.com. Don't forget to visit the Veritas store for focused life force energy. Get a 15-day free trial today with no credit card required. And if you want to get in touch with Mel, want to be a guest on this radio program, have a guest suggestion, or have feedback, just click on the contact button on our website at veritasradio.com. Now, proceed to the Veritas Plus member section or subscribe to listen to the rest of the interview. You don't want to miss it. Because you don't want to believe, you want to know. What are you waiting for? Subscribe now at veritasradio.com.